This is the Watchmen podcast on TV Podcast Industries, where we're looking at episode two, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. Welcome back, watchers. This is TV Podcast Industries, and you're listening to the Watchmen Podcast, Episode 2, Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship. I'm one of your hosts, Chris. Well done for getting that right first time, Chris. I, I thought you were going to get it wrong. I'm Derek, one of your other hosts. Hi there, fellow watchers, and I am the third and final host, John. Yes, welcome back to the Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you so much, because Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship is a mouthful and a half, and I've only had to say it 38 times. <laughs> yes, it's a good job it's not marital feats of the Comanche Horsemanship. Definitely. That, that might be a, an R-rated series. <laughs> it might also be a mouthful. I also just thought it was marital feat of Comanche Horsemanship, and then I was like, what is a marital feat? <laughs> like, not even feats. Like a feat. I was like, hmm, this is a weird one, but okay, I'm gonna roll with it. I think Quentin Tarantino likes those, doesn't he? Marital feats. He does. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you so much, fellow watchers, and welcome back to this amazing review of episode two of The Watchmen. You are right here with TV Podcaster Industries, and we want you to be here going forward for the rest of this season. So make sure you pop over to our website at tvpodcastindustry.com to subscribe to any Minuteman or Crime Buster podcast player. You can also get us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any other good one, too. Yes, we have our own feed for the Watchmen podcast on Spotify and on iTunes now. I didn't have that uh, when we put out our first episode, but it is available now uh, over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and I think on Stitcher as well, have a Watchmen podcast. Otherwise, as Chris said... Subscribe to TV Podcast Industries to get everything we talk about, not just the Watchmen. And yes, we have a special feedback episode after each of our main review episodes. We want to hear your thoughts. You can leave a voicemail so we hear your dulcet tones on this podcast over on tvpodcastindustries.com or you can send us an email with your feedback at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com. We also have a fantastic group over on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash TV Podcast Industries where you can follow along with us, give us your thoughts, your opinions, so any cool things you see around the world. Just make sure you only put your feedback in our spoiler-filled posts. But gentlemen, I think that kind of gives us the main kind of bits of the palaver where we have to go through each episode. <laughs> I really want to talk about this episode, so do we want to get into it? Definitely, definitely. We only go through that because we may have some new listeners that may not know exactly how we do our podcast, because we do it slightly differently each time that we talk about new shows as well. So uh, with these ones, we do have the episodes in advance, so we're recording our podcast ahead of anybody seeing them. And as Chris said, we're going to be doing our feedback episodes, if we get enough feedback in about the episodes. We're kind of crossing fingers and hoping loads of people will be watching along with us, of course. So if you have any thoughts about the episode, just even tell us what you think of it, whether you like it or not. Uh, email them and send them in to us exactly at the details that Chris said. But let's get into the episode details. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I think I may be the fascist here on, on the fact that we have to always say where people can find us. Absolutely. That's coming from Game Over Greggy. <laughs> it certainly is from Greg Miller, yes. And what time do people have to get their feedback in, John? 
Yes, you can send your feedback in by two minutes to midday on every Wednesday. Yes, exactly. And hopefully we'll have the podcast out a little bit after that. Uh, let's get into the details of this episode. Once again, the episode was written by Damon Lindelof, this time with Nick Coos. Uh, Nick Coos was a staff writer on The Leftovers, an excellent show from, that we've talked about a couple of times uh, on the podcast here from Damon Lindelof as well. Uh, he wrote two full episodes of the show himself and was a, a staff writer on nine episodes of the show as well. Uh, on this show, over on Watchmen, he's written this episode and he also gets a full writer's credit on on the finale of the season. So obviously someone that's uh, pretty trusted with these characters and his ideas for the episodes. Yeah, it's an interesting one to see that usually it's the showrunner. So in this case, just being da- Damon kind of doing the first and the end. Mm-hmm. And it's what we've seen in like a lot of the Marvel Netflix shows, what we've seen in a lot of the DC shows. So it's strange to see that Nick is back as well. So obviously he works quite well with Damon. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see what, parts of episode one and two carry over those threads that are so important in the finale exactly and as we said there's only nine episodes in this season and it is a writer's room as Dem Lindelof has really stated this is a whole room full of people that have come together for these episodes so the writer's credit is usually the person that breaks the story so perhaps Nick's input on the final episode gives him a bigger credit uh, than just that of course the final episode hasn't been released yet so we don't know for definite the final credits so we'll see those as the episodes come up but cool to see that he's coming back for that episode anyway um the episode was once again directed by nicole cassell she did episode one and back for the episode here john do you want to give us the official description for the episode sure as angela relives haunting memories of an attack on her family she detains a mysterious man who claims responsibility for tulsa's most recent murder an original play is performed for an audience of one. Yeah, that was a weird moment, wasn't it? It was more than weird. <laughs> yeah. The way it was, I was like slowly watching it going, this is getting straight. This is getting, what the hell? And then the reveal, I was like, we called it. I'm happy about that. But also, this is so damn strange. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think uh, th- th- this episode was quite thready. There seems to be a lot of threads being sort of initially woven for the rest of the series. Mm-hmm. And we'll see how it goes. A uh, lot of intrigue. Um, so I, th- I thought that was pretty good um, for sure. So I really liked that. Um, it really is making me think, what the hell is going on? I think a bit like Angela Abar at the end of this. Exactly. And uh, I do want to apologize before John continues. As our regular listeners know, we can't curse on the podcast, unfortunately. But I think both myself and John definitely, when we watched the episode, said almost word for word the WTF that Angela Abar had at the end of the episode. So Yeah, it's so definitely the same sentiment as Angela. Let's get on our to our countdown to midnight with our first Five minutes to midnight. And yes, we have a brand new structure for our Watchmen podcast. We're going to choose our top three moments in our countdown to two minutes to midnight. So our biggest point of the episode is our five minutes to midnight. Middle is the four minutes to midnight. And our final discussion will be our three minutes to midnight. We'll end our chat at two minutes to midnight because like any good bell at the ball or Cinderella, we need to be home by midnight. Otherwise, we turn into a pumpkin fitting that it's coming up to halloween <laughs> well that at the doomsday clock the official end of the world is currently set at two minutes to midnight yes <laughs> yeah I, I like my cinderella one more uh but what is hark what is that i hear the doomsday clock is approaching the doomsday clock has been set to five minutes to midnight so gentlemen we are at five minutes to midnight what was your first big point that you want to talk about john kick us off uh, well, my big point is certainly the poor wardrobe choice uh, at uh, 
Judd Crawford's house. Um, <laughs> yes. That kind of grandmaster KKK type outfit there, uh, hung up, backlit, frontlit, uh, looking like it's in a museum to some degree, but with the sheriff or police badge there on the side. Mm. Yeah, I thought this was kind of fairly on the nose, um, but it just added to a bit of mystery, maybe suspicion. You know, is this... Um, Judge Crawford's, was he a part of, um, that previous, uh, sort of group? Um, I can't necessarily say it, it's the Rorschach or the, or the Seventh Cavalry, but certainly, you know, from the first episode we saw in 1921, Tulsa with the Greenwood Massacre, mm. uh, in Tulsa. Was it a family member who used to be, um, that and he's retained it for some reason? Is it his? I'd also have, um, the question of, or is it his wife's? Um, and the reason why I say that is because I feel that the seventh cavalry leader has very distinctive, uh, eyes. They're quite blue. Mm. And I think his wife does too. So I'm not entirely sure. I might be barking up the wrong tree there. Interesting. Uh, but I wonder, is it his wife's? I, I'm thinking if it is Judd Crawford's, was it some kind of way to infiltrate into the seventh cavalry? So it was kind of, you know, dangerous missions it, it, it's not because he believes in that um ideology or in some ways then was it planted because you know uh, this is all set up um and it's quite on the nose from will who's been captured by <laughs> um by angela uh, and has been taken back to her bakery uh and sort of secured attention he's kind of arrested but not fully arrested yeah. and he says you know judge crawford does have skeletons in the closet and ultimately when she's there for the wake uh, for his funeral and um, she finds more than a skeleton a, a rather big bogeyman <laughs> in the shape of this sort of you know that grandmaster kkk outfit although will does seem quite surprised that she took the idea of having skeletons in his closet literally and went and checked out his closet it's like yeah exactly i know i said skeletons in his closet but that is a figure of speech kind of yeah. thing, you know? <laughs> definitely but it, i mean it's it throws up a lot of questions here um around the integrity of judd crawford mm. or whether it's a plant whether it's part of a sort of a disguise or costume for infiltration into the seventh cavalry is it some kind of heirloom or dare i say it i'm going to throw it onto his wife as well is it something to do with um his his wife and now that he's gone she can kind of display it in all its kind of uh nastiness i suppose in the wardrobe Maybe, like, the people that were at the wake also throw a little bit of doubt on who Judd Crawford and his wife possibly are. Um, we did see the presidential candidate, Keane, I think his name is. We saw him from the newspaper last episode. We see him being introduced to Angela Barr in this episode here. This is the opposition to Robert Redford, President Robert Redford, the person that brought in the Redfordations to compensate the Tulsa residents who were, and families who were attacked back in 1921. So if she is siding with this candidate keen it's possible as you say john that she is a member of the seventh cavalry or is connected to them or it's him effectively she's taken his coat and hung it up in a closet <laughs> you know and his coat happens to be the grandmaster of the kkk coat yeah, it's like when you them. have guests around and you put everyone's coat on the spare bed exactly, except yeah. his is a hooded kkk outfit something like that yes 
Maybe the sheriff's badge, though, is pointing a little more towards Judge Crawford. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, James Woke, who, who played Keen, um, he's a, he's a big actor now. He, he's done his time in a lot of TV shows, um, never really broke into movies, but I can very much see him playing the leader, the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he does it very well in his previous shows. Yeah. Yeah. So I see that because he plays the, politician like all smiles really well yes we do see uh jane played by francis fisher saying that she used to work for him mm-hmm. um so it's very much in some political sense now i am actually leaning towards and i i kind of dismissed it quite up quite easily and uh, derek i'm apologizing mm-hmm. that you thought judd was some form of mass vigilante. You did think potentially he was DD. He was the, the, the second night owl. Dan Dryberg. Yes. That's Dan, what I thought yes. last episode. And I, I have a feeling somebody actually commented on a post we put up after just seeing the trailer from the Watchmen saying that he's drinking out of a mug that has an owl on it as well. So some other indication that possibly this was night owl too from the original uh, comic book. Um, growing old now and living in a different city. The comic books did actually end with Dan Dryberg and his partner at the time, Silk Spectre, both creating new identities for themselves to go into hiding. So possibly his new identity was Judge Crawford and he went into hiding by moving out of New York and moving to Tulsa. These are all speculation, of course. We haven't seen any further than this episode, but I still think there's a possibility that this is something that he's doing. I love John's idea that he could possibly be trying to infiltrate the 7th Cavalry with using this really inflammatory KKK outfit. It's either that or he's, he's got a very odd eBay history. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think the, I think the other thing as well is that maybe, you know, if it was Will that did string him up, mm-hmm. then that could be the reason. Unfortunately, his infiltration double bluff has backfired. Um, and he's actually been thought of as a prominent member of the seventh cavalry. Um, I don't know. Um, I, th- I think the other thing as well about candidate keen is, um, you know, at the way he kind of asks Angela, are you police? Again, it's quite a leading question given that you would think people in, in um, in politics would also be trying to hide or, or not reveal the police identity mm-hmm. given that they're allowed to hide their face. Um, and I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, she, she kind of brushes it off with, I used to be, but I'm, I'm now retired. I run a bakery. Yeah. Uh, but I, I thought that was an interesting question that that would be asked from a, a prominent public figure, mm-hmm. uh, for yeah. a police organization where the identity of the officers needs to be kept secret in this new world. Mm hmm. What, what, the way where my head is at is that potentially his Judd's superhero costume, his previous persona was hung up in there originally. Mm-hmm. Like you would have seen a, the night owl kind of, uh, superhero outfit yeah. in there. And someone has removed that and placed the outfit, the KKK Grandmaster outfit in there to continue and to force Angela to continue her investigation. They're literally leading Angela on a threat. Um, they're, they're trying to get her to, to investigate further, which actually, Derek, I think this brings you on to, and because I believe it's the person I 
think is kind of pulling the strings mm. or at least helping brings you onto your second onto your point yeah i think that we just learned a lot about louis gossett jr's character in this particular episode will uh the young kid that we saw in the start of the first episode his father was in the military and we get kind of a whole cycle of of who he is in this episode but he is throwing spanners all around the place into whether we can work out who he is um there's moments in here where he says he has superpowers. He says he can move things with his mind. Maybe he's Dr. Manhattan in the skin of this character of Will. You know, he says he's the one that killed Judd Crawford, yet he's in a wheelchair and is 105 years old. So the chance yeah. of him being able to lift Judd Crawford and, and lynch him and put him on the tree, you know, all of those things are pretty impossible unless he's using superpowers effectively. And all the way through the episode, you're going, ah, oh, yeah, he's just messing with her. He's just messing with Angela about these abilities that he has. But then he escapes and goes across the road to get some eggs and comes back and cooks them for himself in her lair, effectively. So how has he done all that? (laughs) How has he gotten out? Who is he? What What is it about this character of Will? You know, we do learn a big thing right at the end of the episode. We learn that he is her grandfather, and that's why he wants to get involved with Angela Abar. So we think his name is Will Abar, possibly, um, that he is connected to her that way, that he is a a paternal grandfather. that she didn't know of before now, which is all really interesting to know about. Um, she is descended from people that were attacked during the attacks on, on Tulsa. Um, but I'm so intrigued by this character and the fact that, as he says, friends in high places, as in a massive spaceship, are able to lift him up and take him away inside a car when he's about to be taken into into custody by, by Angela at the end of the episode. So um, he does have friends in high places, maybe not space. Probably someone driving the uh, the Archie, the L-mobile or the L-plane uh, um, that we saw in episode one. Probably somebody driving that that's lifting the car away. But uh, just really interesting how he's in her life, who he is and, and what is it about him. Well, that's it. That The L-mobile, um, effectively Archie, if that is the, the vehicle that lifted the car and will away, mm. you know, it may be... You know, it does suggest that possibly Judd Crawford may not be dead. It may be a ruse. It may be, um, a, a, an act. I don't know. He looked pretty dead up on that tree, but I, I'm just kind of postulating here because I, I think that the show kind of probably needs that because he is obviously this whole scene of Judd Crawford swinging from the tree with Will in the wheelchair next to him. Like, this is a definitive scene that is effectively now moving the whole story along. It is mm-hmm. this, who is Will? Who is he really? You know, we, we hear that he's taking pills to help with his memory. Well, are they helping with his memory or are they giving him false memories? You know, we don't know how true a lot of this stuff is yet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what adds to this great intrigue around who this guy is. Because, you know, we see him in the flashbacks uh, where he's trying on his dad's uniform as well. And, and you're getting a lot of history about this guy, yet there's still so many questions. Yeah. And I love that. I do like as well one shout out. I thought it was proper smooth. Um, you know, you think Angela is just being nice to an old man in a wheelchair by giving him coffee mm-hmm. when she brings him back to the bakery at the start and then immediately just bags it in order <laughs> so that she can Test go thing. to, I think it's the, the Greenwood Center yeah. where it, it kind of talks of the history of the Tulsa massacre in 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
checks on his DNA and identity. So I thought that was a really smooth kind of move by her. Very, very cool move. Yeah. Uh, one final thing about this for Will for me. Um, I loved that opening scene transition between his father receiving the piece of propaganda from the German army uh, in 1921, uh, receiving that that note and then the transition as you say you have have young will uh trying on his father's outfit and reading out this note that he's received about colored soldiers in the army and needing to turn on the american army because that america is not for them germany will welcome them with open arms yeah. kind of thing and then the transition to seeing will sitting in the wheelchair still holding that piece of paper how many years now we're talking like almost 100 years later he's still got that same piece of paper and still reading it so to me, it's saying the propaganda that's been used back in those days, Will has always grown up with that piece of propaganda associated with him, constantly reading it as his last reminder of his family that he left behind in Tulsa uh, when he went and, and was, was freed. So what has it done to Will's mind to have this piece of propaganda as being his only living memory of the family for a 100 years? So it seems to have turned him against American society, it would seem. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's really important. Um, you know, this actually did happen as well. So by 1917, you had um, almost uh, 400,000 uh, African-Americans drafted into the U.S. Army, but mm-hmm. they were not allowed to be Marines. There yeah. was segregation from the white troops, and they were kind of regularly sort of reminded of their second-class citizenship. Um, and, I mean, that's kind of shown here with the, the guy on the horse spitting down on Will's father yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. in his uniform like in the navy they could only be kitchen helphands or cooks really? they couldn't be um sailors within the u.s navy and it was this this um this german leaflet drop uh was specifically aimed at colored americans to uh, destroy morale and encourage desertion right and um, saying that um, you know, effectively you're treated like crap. Yeah. Uh, that's not the case in Germany. It was, you know, those seeds of morale. And I, I think again, it, it's one of those really interesting parts of, of history, like with Tulsa 1921, that obviously is maybe a little more, um, unregistered within the history books mm-hmm. or slightly less told. Um, and I think this is a, an interesting thing that may be running through, um, each of the episodes. We don't know yet, but certainly it started off the first two episodes with, um, fairly prominent historical events for African American people were, you may not really know about it or hear about it. Absolutely. I'm starting to think of Will as almost like a Professor Xavier type yeah. character. Or more, say, old man Bruce Wayne from Batman Beyond. Right. Yeah. Um, where he, he's, he's infirm, uh, in terms of like he, yes, he cannot lift. He couldn't have lifted Jut and mm-hmm. kind of, um, basically hung him himself. Yeah. But I'm starting to think of he is a character who is like a mastermind. He's been around a hundred years. He's been planning to destroy the KKK or in this case, the Seventh Cavalry. Four years. So he's working on that. So he's rounded up his own army, his own vigilantes to do this, which potentially included, uh, after White Knight, mm-hmm. the actual, uh, the, the, the police, or in this case, Judd. And when he found Judd dead, 
he's like, okay, we need to replace Judd. We need someone else who will most likely be the, the leader of the, the authorities, which in this case is going to be Angela or Knight. Mm. Um, so he's basically pulling, he's a puppet master. He's pulling the strings and, uh, Louis Gossip Jr. plays that role so well, where just the, the look in his eye mm-hmm. when Angela looks at him and he's being spirited away. Yeah. Like the smile on his face where he goes, I told you it was someone, I told you it was people in high places. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. Our doomsday clock is still ticking. Uh, We do need to move on to our next big point though, Chris. So what is your big point for the episode? So one of the big ones for me is the roundup of the suspected 7th Calvary. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. It's only about a 10 minute um, kind of scene, but it's starting to show the, the authorities versus the, 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 the suspected cavalry, the, 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 the downtrodden, because it was, Angela says to the Russian that this is not, they're not all seven cavalry. And he goes, I know, but they'll know who is. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you do get is this very much show of force by the authorities, by the police, where all of them there in masks uh, in front of the trailer park. But then you see all of the the trailer park residents, or not all of them, some are still inside uh, their actual homes, but yeah. you see a lot of them there, and they start standing up because the Russian incites them towards yeah. it. So what we, we're getting is this uh, two clashing heads. Mm-hmm. Um, now, also, I will say, fantastic scene for action, like just seeing everyone do their thing seeing sister knight being able to kind of like spinning back kick a guy in the face Mm -hmm. but then she starts to lose it seeing looking glass staying completely out of the fray but then seeing the complete opposite of that which is the russian i don't think we fully got his name yet as a character um or as a superhero vigilante or officer if you want to call Mm. it whatever term we're going to use him doing this he was like i want them like i need payback so seeing him get so into it, um, it's just a, it's a very interesting piece because they do, they go through and they round up a lot of the guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It certainly is. And with Angela saying, I'm going to stay out of this, I don't want any part of this. And it's only when she's attacked, the minute she's attacked, she almost kills the guy. Yeah. She yeah. punches him on the ground. You, you do see him breathing as she walks away. So, you know, she hasn't killed him, but it is really interesting. And it does bring up that other question. I know with what the showrunner and writers are trying to do with this show is not say that this is the person that's right. You're following the person that's right. They're definitely giving us a lot of gray in here with Angela and her and her side, all of the vigilante police officers, effectively, because one of the things that really stood out for me at the end of the episode was if you think about what's happened to them, they were attacked during White Night. They're now masked. Yes. And they're now police force. Yes. But all of the police people retired. They all left the service is what we're told. And all of these people are effectively almost vigilantes, sort of legal. Maybe they're not legal. Maybe they have just taken back up the fight as vigilantes. Maybe they're members of their group that are, that were never police officers at this stage, you know? So there is a little bit of gray on their side as well as everything else. What I find also quite interesting is the politics of it. Um, we have a group on one side, which is the seventh cavalry, which are just being painted as racists. And we have the people on the other side that support what happened in Tulsa and the, and the Redfordations. They're under President Redford. And what we see here at the seventh cavalry's home, this, caravan park basically 
is there under the idol of Nixon, under the idol yes. of Richard Nixon. So it's a choice of two political parties, not a choice of two belief systems. It's two political parties that they're sitting under, which is, I think is really interesting. Yeah, th- this was really good. I, I love that word. The-, the Russian character played by Andrew Howard, I, I still don't know if I know his name. Uh, well, I don't at this moment in time, but it's, I, I love it goes, you know, We'll give you to five, and if not, um, we'll pull down your idol as they kind of put wrap the 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 harness around this um, idol of Nixon. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that speaks to the partisanship of American politics at the moment. You have this at the moment between Republican and and Democrats mm. um, of whoever is in charge that it's become highly polarized highly partisan and no one listens to one another Uh, and you have this absolutely encapsulated with this retaliation on the cavalry and i think what makes it really visceral is the fact it it comes from them taking down their chief of police judd crawford from the tree who seems to have been up there swinging in the wind for an age because of all the forensic stuff that's had to be done Mm. and i think that's it you know you have the russian really going for it you have um both looking glass and uh sister knight really holding back um and i i must say there was a line um just before back at the uh lynch lynching tree where sister knight goes um as always, you're cold as glass to looking glass. And mm-hmm. he goes, then why am I crying under here? And I thought that was really, yeah. really yeah. Uh, a great line. Um, because I, I think, you know, his face is truly hidden under that, uh, that mask. Uh, and we even see him in front of the TV, just eating dinner with the mask still on as well, yeah. which I think is quite interesting. Tim Black Nelson, obviously a very famous actor as well. So you'd expect him to have the mask off quite often doesn't in this episode which i thought was thought was quite interesting so i like just how it ramped up here yeah you know how again as you say these little things just ramp up the the tension and the pressure absolutely and one final thing for me for me on this bit um if we're going to pretend that damon lindelof was speaking the truth when he was saying he wasn't talking about the real world politics one thing to mention is as we've said before richard nixon was in power for a significant amount of longer period of time in the America of the Watchmen comic books. I think it's somewhere in the region of about 20 years he was in power of the US, something that's impossible in real life. You can only be in power for two terms, effectively. But he broke the mold, and I think he might have been maybe three or four terms in office in the comic books. So you can understand that he's built up this cult of worship from these characters, just purely in the comic book universe. So we're just going to pretend that it's not a real-world allegory, specifically about politics in America at the moment. Yes. <laughs> we got we got to take them at their word, right? Exactly. Sure. That's, 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 <laughs> Why not? Um but I think it probably is. So I think it's about time we move on to our next main point. So that means the doomsday clock has been set to four minutes. The doomsday clock has been set to four minutes to midnight. So, John, do you want to give us your medium point now? Yes, mine is... uh, I do not endorse this production. (laughs) Um, This is the Hooded Justice, uh, an American hero. I really enjoyed this. I, I don't know what I was expecting from this, this scene when you have the, the four, uh, guys walking towards the sort of convenience store, mm-hmm. uh, putting on the, the, um, the handkerchief over their, their face. Again, another mask, uh, loading their guns to go and effectively rob, uh, this convenience store. But I loved Hooded Justice coming in and being bloody, 
bolshy and irreverent. Uh, I really liked that. Uh, I, I really liked, um, just how, you know, you get that kind of terms and conditions that, you know, this, this has, uh, racist language. This is, will be show depictions of violence. This will be, um, sort of abusive in a way to literally every Every. section of society. Um, and, uh, you know, that it's not endorsed at all. Mm -hmm. This view of, um, an American hero, this hooded justice. So I, I really, um, I really enjoyed this scene. And I, again, I, I thought the whole action, uh, in this scene were, was really good. So, um, this is, this is my meeting point because yeah. again, the hooded justice is one of those characters that's always been there in the comics, uh, as well as, um, in, in the movie as well. But you only really, um, obliquely get to, to know about the Hooded yeah. Justice. So it was good to get, um, this character sort of having his moment saving the convenience store, mm-hmm. um, in a roundabout way. Yes, he gets rid of the, the, the four, um, robbers, but he's kind of a bit of an arse about it really in mm-hmm. the end to literally everyone. So I, I, I really enjoyed, um, this, this this rescue by the Hooded Justice. Yes, Hooded Justice, one of the earliest of the superheroes. He's probably been around first. I think he was uh, he was the first uh, person to put on the mask and inspired a bunch of other people and one of the main members of the Minutemen, the first superhero group as well. Yeah, so what I find really interesting is the uh, take when we, we see the Hooded Justice talking, saying, and we see his body mm-hmm. Washing away, and he goes, "That's not really me, but I needed everyone to think that was me." Yes, exactly. Do you feel the voiceover is a little bit like Rorschach's voiceover? Yes. yes, exactly. I got that. I'm more going. So, the one of the core parts of the original comics books was uh, the comic within the yeah. comic. Um, uh, and actually, what we see is that the comic, the theme of the comic within the comic, was always kind of somewhat reflecting mm-hmm. some of the core themes of the Watchmen universe and what was happening in those each of those issues. Yes. What I'm starting to wonder uh, is that is this is what's also happening in Tulsa, mm-hmm. in that someone has said they are dead, and now, John, this kind of leads back to your Judd piece, potentially someone has said they died because they wanted the world to think they were dead so they could do what needed to be done. Okay, maybe. Uh, now, is this Judd or is this potentially Rorschach? Is this, um, because you, there was definitely a, um, there's definitely a direct link between Rorschach, um, keeping his mask on, pulling it up and eating and looking glass. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Doing that. And you said it's strange to see that actor and that character at home. Having his dinner with just a mask, like absolutely. People. And as we say, um, the, the Rorschach mask itself was supposed to reveal something about the person that looked at the mask. The Looking Glass mask is effectively a mirror mask that people look at and see them their own reflection in it as he interrogates them. So those two things are massively similar. Um, the idea of looking yeah. at it and seeing yourself reflected back, definitely. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely see that. I do love that line from from Hood of Justice, this documentary that's being made, where he's going. And people ask me, who are you? And he goes, 
if I knew who that was, I wouldn't be wearing the effing mask, would I? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's really uh, yeah. good. Sounds great. <laughs> um, massively violent, though. And I think one of the things about that costume that we have in Hood of Justice, it's definitely one that worked really well in the comic books. You could see what was going on with the noose and with the hood and, and that outfit. And then we saw it in live action for very, very short amount of time in the, uh, the Zack Snyder movie. Um, seeing it in action here in this ultra violent scene, I actually thought it worked very well. Um, I love the reactions of everybody around as he's taking out each of the people that are trying to rob this shop. Um, as he gets more and more brutal, they're all kind of like, you know, giving him a little bit of applause in their own little way and really happy to see Hood of Justice. And then he starts smacking the guy's head off the counter and then breaks his head with the cash register on top of it oh, to yeah. finish his brutality. And everybody in there is disgusted by how violent he's gone, really. Yeah, it's, it's really violent. I mean, the whole thing is, but yeah, he, he doesn't hold back, shall we say. And mm-hmm. again, that's, to me, there's a little bit of, uh, Rorschach in that as Definitely. well. Um, and I, I like, uh, what you're saying, Chris, about this idea of having the, you know, the body wash up, pretending it's him and you, you're getting these flashbacks. So you, you, you're starting to wonder, um, what's real, what's imagined, what's the story within the story that feeds into the, the current, um, story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was even with the flashback to the White Knight, it was kind of like how that worked in, in all of this. And I know, we'll come to that in a minute, but, um, but it's also about the individual people. Who is it? Um, you know, who are these people really? Are they who they say they mm-hmm. are? Um, or is it just different people behind the mask, uh, yeah. taking forward, um, what the previous person who held that mask believed, you know, Maybe. carrying on their work, this idea of having multiple people inhabit the idea that's presented by the mask. So I, yeah. I, I think that's really good. Maybe. And as you mentioned, Chris, the Black Friday comic book, you know, comic books are very popular in the late seventies, early eighties when this book was being written. And we see in this, everybody is sitting down in front of the TV to watch American Hero Story and see the story of Hood of Justice. This is a very central thing. So I think you might be right about that little reference to the connection between the Black Freighter comic book and Hood of Justice on TV, the American Hero uh, story as well. Yeah. So um, I think that kind of talks ties up the American mm-hmm. Hero story. Uh, Derek, uh, because John did briefly mention uh-huh. it would you like to go on and talk about your point yeah um my my middle point uh, my my medium size point for the episode really is the white knight the attack on christmas eve because i think it's just filmed so well and gives so much information about why the police force are now the way they are i suppose um so we see angela and her husband at home on christmas eve having that really funny conversation where he's going you know the clock is at two minutes to midnight and he's going in two minutes. I'm opening up that present, Angela. You know, <laughs> he's kind of saying to her, I don't like surprises. It's Christmas day. Then, you know, once again, midnight figuring in quite significantly into this, uh, into this TV series. And then the, the seventh cavalry break through the door and shoot at her. Um, really interestingly, she takes out one of them, gets his gun and the other guy is apparently standing over her, got her dead to rights and she's unconscious on the floor, but she wakes up in hospital alive afterwards. Right. So, Putting a little bit of fuel to John's theory that maybe Judd is involved with these guys. Um, she wakes up with, uh, with her former chief standing over in the, in the hospital, watching over her when yeah. her husband's gone away. 
But is there more behind that? Is it more that she didn't get shot because he wanted to keep her alive? He was the other person that was behind that 7th Cavalry mask. Uh, and when the person he went into the house with got killed, maybe he decided, well, I'm not going to kill her myself. Something like that. We'll, we'll see as the episodes go on. But there is so much in this. Like we hear there were 40 other homes all attacked on the same night, including her partner who lost his life with his wife as they were asleep in bed waiting for Christmas Day to come. And that's where we find out about Angela and her husband getting uh, the kids, the kids that aren't hers, um, as Looking Glass mm. so horribly puts it. Um, she's adopted, effectively, her partner's three kids uh, to to live in her home with her. Yeah, yeah, and also Judd Crawford does seem pretty beat up there. So again, what's the reality yeah. here with Judd Crawford? Yeah. Um, he's kind of a twisty-turny kind of a character. He's been portrayed as that. But yeah, I wondered that, why she hadn't been shot in the face. Mm-hmm. I thought we were going to see her husband come in and save her and maybe that's all that happened we yeah. just didn't see it but um she survives that white knight christmas yes. the santa baby flashback absolutely i love actually how they do that as well the santa baby song playing and that actually gets slower um as the attacks going on the actual uh record that's being played slows down as the attacks going on uh, which doesn't happen, obviously, in the actual song. So uh, it was obviously a choice of the the people who were doing the music for the episode to slow it down, to accentuate what's happening in the scene. I think it's beautifully done. Really good scene. Yeah, uh, I, I loved everything about this. Mm-hmm. This gave us so much more information about White Knight um, and explaining how it all went down. As you said, it, it was the full, complete police force was attacked. Yes. Um, with only a handful remaining of the 40. Mm-hmm. So you would expect uh, Tulsa maybe having just around 40, 50 police officers. Maybe. Um, because it's not, it's not a huge, it's not like Dallas or it, it's not a, a massive, massive city. Um, in comparison. So you could see it having a more sheriff's police force. And I do think the point is made by Crawford that not only were, were 40 people attacked on the same night, all the other police officers are handing in their notice or handing in their retirement papers yes. to leave. So even though the force may be significantly larger than that, it's had enough of an effect to make police officers step back and go, I, I don't want my family killed over this. I'm out kind of thing. So maybe the force now is that room that we saw in episode one with the probably only 50 or 60 officers who are all masked. Uh, maybe that's all that is the police force in Tulsa now. Um, but it may have started a much bigger level. Uh, and now it's just people that are willing to put on the mask, you know, because Angela instantly says, even though she's still in in bed three days after being attacked, she instantly says, well, I'm not giving up. I'm here. And and he says to her, Crawford says to her, well, if you're if you're staying, I'm staying kind of thing. So yeah. um, so there is some members of the organization that this has actually served to galvanize against them. And there's other members that have left effectively. So it's a really it does give a huge um, set up for who these characters are in the police force of Tulsa. Now, uh, yeah, it, it 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 does, and it just it, it's very much answering two questions, posing eight more. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> the pilot first episode was very much just a setup, mm-hmm. and now we're getting little pieces of information, but it's just posing so many more. And I was like, yeah, this, oh no, but why? Why have that person just stand over her? Like, <laughs> now I'm going to have to wait until episode eight to find out what really happened there. No, I'm not complaining. I'm yeah. just... 
being Irish and complaining about it for the sake of complaining. So what you're I saying is that it's a Damon Lindelof television show then? Exactly. <laughs> like, who would have known? Who would have known that, you know, six seasons um, of Lost, three seasons of The Leftovers, who would have known that he would pose questions that he isn't going to answer in the same episode? <laughs> no, it's terrible. But really good. There is another couple of things that were going on. Chris, you have some questions about the tech that's used for your medium point, yeah? Yeah, so this is just really starting to become interesting for me because we see... Um, we posed that potentially it was just the police force that had access to this more high tech advanced um technology mm. um but i don't think that's the case anymore mm-hmm. i'm wondering if it the, it's a lot more um openly available now i don't mean legally but just right. openly available than um we expected because first of all we see yes potentially the the Elmobile, archie taking will mm-hmm. or at least some form of that so so a hovering ufo like <laughs> event that took with a massive electromagnet that can lift a car yeah i think you actually mentioned last episode that you think that this might be something they made off the plans of archie maybe there's multiple yes. ones made because we did see in that first episode remember judd crawford was in what we thought was at the archie vehicle and it crashed to the ground so unless somebody's been tinkering with it and fixing it up and is made it be able to be fl- flown the following day, it's unlikely to be the same model, but it could exactly. be another model of the same thing, that the technology is out there since you know, it was 30 years ago when Nidal was flying that around the city of New York. So maybe it's out there. Exactly. And that's what I'm trying to think. I think it's it's more readily available for all the different police forces, for blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see Angela's X-ray goggles. Which yes. is very much a night owl thing mm-hmm. that seems to have been co-opted. Again, just like using the, it, it looked very much like the night owl hood or the, 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 the bionicles that were used and she could zoom in and out and the depth was changed. So two pieces of night owl equipment in Judd Crawford's police officers and police force. Hmm. I think you might be proving my uh, little idea that that could have been Dan Dryberg. Potentially. Mm. But. What starts to throw it off, then, is the news reporters, the the film crew at the crime scene. <laughs> I know. That was they, hilarious. Yeah. Two cameramen essentially wearing a pair, of, like, moth wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Floating, and we see that they're being shot down like drones. Yes, exactly. Um, It was just really interesting, because we keep getting these, these flashes that, yes, this is 2019, but it's an alternate take. We already know the history is an alternate take, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. but also the technological advances are an alternate take. Yeah, maybe Arthur from The Tick has moved over into the Watchmen universe <laughs> and lent everybody his uh, his moth wings. <laughs> yeah, so who knows? But it does feel realistic, doesn't it? I know, I know it, the tech is a bit weird and the guys are carrying these massive cameras effectively, but it does feel realistic given how many drones are being used with cameras on them to capture footage for movies and TV shows and the news as well. You know, It does feel realistic that if you had tech that had a pair of wings and could fly a news reporter over the top of, of a place they're not supposed to be in, that they would absolutely use it to get this footage and put it on TV. It feels realistic. In a way, you know? And of course you have in the, uh, what's it? The, the Greenwood center, mm-hmm. they have that hologram aspect uh, for the displays in that center, mm-hmm. like you get in Star Wars yep. as well. So uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Help me chief Joe Crawford. You're my only hope. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, really interesting. I also love that whole that whole thing of doing the DNA test in the Crawford Center as well, where um where they go and your name is, and she goes 
Will. There's no, there's no other <laughs> verification at all. She just says her name is Will, even though uh, clearly from the DNA sample, it's a male sample, right? I'm Will. <laughs> but I do like that. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. No, so that was, that was my main kind of secondary point. It's mm. just that I'm interested to see where they continue to take this tech now. Absolutely. Yeah. And interesting if it's all to do with, uh, to do with Nightel. Has he been involved in the creation of all of this tech or? Adrian Vite possibly somewhere uh, creating some of this tech for the world. Uh, I did notice this episode definitely. I think might have mentioned it in the first episode, but I definitely noticed it in this episode, all the electric cars that are driving around. Every car seems yes. to be electric. So uh, definitely a change from where we are right now. Most cars are petrol with a couple of electric cars, maybe every fourth or fifth one kind of thing. This is certainly electric cars have have pervaded in the world much more than, uh, than they are currently uh, at. As we speak, I suppose. Yes, but speaking of the impending climate disaster, <laughs> let's get to three minutes to midnight. The doomsday clock has been set to three minutes to midnight. Yeah, our, our small point, a small thing about the episode that we want to talk about. John, do you want to take us off? Because I think we might actually have a similar point. But John, your small point about the episode. Yeah, it's the, the strange uh, stagehands. You have the many faces of Mr. Phillips, and you have the multiple faces of Miss Crookshanks. And mm-hmm. um, yes, uh, I think Chris mentioned it uh, for the first episode, this idea of maybe clones, um, androids, possibly, bionics, mm-hmm. or, or just multiple sets of twins, like Dolly the Sheep. But I suppose that is a clone. So yeah, clones. Uh, but we have uh, all the stagehands, all the actors on stage doing this play, um that are all Mr. Phillips and Miss Crookshanks. And unfortunately, one of the Mr. Phillips really has a pretty brutal end, uh, where fire in the hold uh, really is fire in the hold. It didn't seem as though there was much um, special effects with that one. No, uh, no. He did literally light up Mr. Phillips here. And what I thought was interesting, that first moment where you have Jeremy Irons repeating what we saw in episode one. He's getting the cake delivered to him at his table again, but this time he has absolutely no time for him. He's like, yeah, yeah, get on with it, right? I want to get in and do this play again. Uh, now I want real tears tonight, Miss Crookshanks. So you're wondering how many times has she performed this play with the death of Mr. Phillips over and over again every night uh, as they try to perfect this play? I guess that's what they're doing. Um, really brutal, really awful, and... I, yeah, I hope they're clones, not twins, John. You know, twins are real things in real <laughs> no, life. No, right? exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I th- clones, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought what was most disturbing was that one of the Mr. Phillips was called Montrose, was mm-hmm. always being called Montrose. And he wanted to become Mr. Phillips, who he must know will be in the next rendition of this play, um, sort of, uh, you know, given, a a fairly large amount of uh, pork crackling um, in, in the fire hole. So I was like going, uh, basically, are you, you're just suicidal, Montrose, because well, you now, want to become this new Mr. Phillips. Well, then Montrose challenged Jeremy Irons' character, and Jeremy Irons says, do you want to be the next Mr. Phillips? So it's very much like a... Oh, that guy's just annoyed me, right? He's gonna be, he's gonna be the guy I burned to death in this furnace tomorrow <laughs> night. Like, it's, it's really violent. And, you know, we had this discussion about the posters advertising Jeremy Irons' role in the show. And this is actually, if you don't mind me also bringing in my point for this part, um, we saw the posters of Jeremy Irons saying he is exactly who you think he is. And everybody thinks he's Adrian Vice, that he's Ozymandias from the original, uh, the original graphic novel. Uh, even on IMDb, he's listed as uh, Ozymandias and Adrian Vice. 
I am suddenly going, is this actually John Osterman inside the mind of Dr. Manhattan trying to break out this crazy messed up guy that has been stuck inside the mind of the super being for the last 40 years, 50, 60 years even since this accident happened to him. And this is why he's building this play effectively. You know, we have that really weird moment where he comes up on his horse to a tree and plucks what you think is an apple out of it and actually turns out to be a tomato. Well, that's not in the real world, is it? So, yeah, that was actually my, one of my points. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I was going to actually comment on that because mm-hmm. you had talked about this potential, um, not non-real world scenario, mm-hmm. uh, where maybe like in the in the mind of or VR, etc. Um, but then with the with the reveal of the cl- what I'm assuming are clones, right? I, yeah. I don't think they're androids. I think this is clones. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, um. Jeremy Irons of uh, Ozymandias is basically <laughs> genetically altering things. So the, the tomato tree yeah. is an apple tree that grows tomatoes and it's one because he likes the taste of tomatoes. Yeah. So he has grown that himself. Um, and the, I'm wondering if they're going to change part of the creation of Dr. Manhattan. Okay. That, Jeremy, the Ozymandias had a hand in it, mm. um, or that there is more to it. Like, the, it doesn't make sense right now why he would be so enraptured by the creation of Dr. Manhattan. And he would have been, I don't think he would have even been born when this happened to John Osterman, right? Cause that happened in 1947. Gosh, I should have written down what was on that, uh, what was on that signpost in the background. It might have been, it might have been the 40s or 50s. And Adrian Weiss, Ozymandias was around in 1980s. So, um, so he shouldn't, maybe his father had a hand in it, but I don't think the actual character of Adrian Weiss was around when it originally happened to Dr. Manhattan. Um, which is making me suddenly question, Maybe they were messing with us, as you said, Chris, last episode. Maybe they were messing with us. He's exactly who you think he is. Well, as long as you think he is who he is, because well, <laughs> yeah, he's exactly. not if you don't think that. <laughs> uh, or could it be a split personality? Mm-hmm. So we hear that Dr. Manhattan cannot change his skin. Yeah. So could it be a fractured personality of Dr. Manhattan who is now... Ozymandias? That's why I'm thinking yeah. it's John Osterman inside the mind of Dr. Manhattan. I don't think it's... It's Adrian Veidt, Osmondias at all. I think that was a marketing campaign and messing with us. <laughs> all this is interesting for me. Yeah. It's just one of the most interesting parts is how this is going to feed into the main storyline. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing in what this character is doing. There is nothing in the stuff around him. Yeah. There is nothing um like writing a paper or anything like that. There's nothing there. Yeah. And we don't even know if it's in the real world. We know it's even filmed in a different country. It's filmed in Wales uh, when the main body of this is being filmed in Georgia in the US. So all the Jeremy Iron stuff is in a completely different world effectively yeah. right now. So will it tie together? How will it tie together as the rest of the sh- show goes on? And I think I'm going to resign myself to calling him Jeremy Irons from now on because I really, right now in the second episode, I have no idea who the character is. I think it might be yeah. John Osterman though. <laughs> but one of the, the potentially interesting things is... Uh, I have friends in high places. Mm-hmm. We hear Will say that, mm-hmm. right? Posturing, just questioning. Could Will be referring to 
Jeremy Irons. You do have that feeling. Yeah. 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 I, I, I have he that. He is yeah. the mastermind because he was the mastermind of everything else. Is he the mastermind behind this? And Will has been 109 years old because he's cloned. Mm-hmm, maybe. Um, or he, there's some form of it there that is being helped aged with him. Genetics are working out. Those pills are keeping him alive maybe. because his clone body is dying. Exactly. There's so many questions. Yeah. It's, it's that thing we're told, we're told so many things and yet we can't be sure whether they're correct. As I was saying, and like you've brought here, Chris, it's are those pills really for his memory or is it for his memory because he is some kind of creation? Maybe. Um, and yes, I suppose even, uh, just coming back to what you said earlier, um, even androids, uh, Maybe dream of electric sheep. <laughs> perhaps. Perhaps. It's fascinating. You can see from that being all of our points, that yeah. final point. I know it's, we said it's a small point, but all three of us have chosen that weird moment where we see the stage play. We also see a giant naked blue guy. So, uh, you oh, know, yes, nice reference do. back to the comic there, obviously, uh, when we have the creation of Dr. Manhattan there with Mr. Phillips. Um, so we do get everything here in this scene. Why is the character of Jeremy Irons so obsessed by something that must have happened 60 or 70 years ago if he wasn't involved in some way, whether he is John Osterman, whether he is Dr. Manhattan personified as a human, as we heard the mention that he can't do that. Maybe he can now. Maybe that's what he's been working on for 30 years while he's been off Mars, getting to look like a human. And he's put himself in the body of yeah. uh, Jeremy Irons and has broken his brain or something. <laughs> it's <laughs> the obsession of the mind being played out. And eventually it will pull back and we'll be on Mars. Mm-hmm. Or will we? Or will, or will, will we? Gentlemen, I hark, I do hear the doomsday clock again. The doomsday clock is now at two minutes. I repeat, two minutes to midnight. So uh, this is our final point. And uh, just kind of any last minute notes, some Easter eggs, common connections that you notice, gents. Anything for you guys? Loads. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just quickly for me, I love the typewriter at the start, uh, typing out Watchmen in, mm-hmm. in the in the font. Um, yeah, sad, I know, but I I really like that <laughs> font fan job. Font fan job. Yeah, <laughs> and I love Topher's floating Meccano set that he was doing. It was just like, what is going on here? Again, of this world, but very different. Um, and, and I, I def- kind of quite like that. Absolutely. And I definitely wanted some kind of explanation for it. It looked like when I watched it the second time, the first time I was like, hang on a second, does he have superpowers? And he's using them to build this cathedral out of Meccano, effectively. And then I noticed there's a kind of a pad underneath. There's like a metal pad or sorry, a black pad underneath. It could be metal. It could be Magnus ah, okay. that's raising it up. But he gets frustrated and allows the thing to just disintegrate on the floor. Which he obviously throws it across the room. Yeah, but he instantly resets himself. Did you notice how quickly he yeah. goes? Can I go and watch TV? You know, he instantly has that second of anger and then instantly resets himself to, yeah. to go and kind of watch some TV now as if he's back to normal. So I don't know. It felt like they were saying he has some form of powers. And then you're kind of going, oh, no, there's going to be a real world explanation for this in the future because nobody has powers except for Dr. Manhattan, right? So, Correct. Um, so I'm intrigued to see how we, how we get that played out, but it is something completely otherworldly, as you said, John. Yeah. And, and also just coming back to the earlier point, Andrew Howard's character is Red Scare. Ah, very good. Very good. That's the Russian. Yes. Yes. Very good, John. Thank you very much for that one. Um, I think there's a couple of really big things that happen in this episode. Uh, Chris, you were talking a little bit about Black Fraser, the comic book, um, from the original Watchmen comics. Um, 
I definitely think we see the newspaper vendor that's in this episode in Tulsa. Yeah. Um, we see the newspaper headlines on the front of the New Frontiersman. The New Frontiersman is where Rorschach sent his uh, his diary, his uh, description of everything that went on to be published. So the New Frontiersman is still going 30 years later. The headline that's on the New Frontiersman is Global Squid Falls Baffle Scientists. There's, uh, they've happened in four different cities across the globe, effectively. So interestingly, this is something that will play out about the giant squid from back in the 80s, uh, now manifesting as squid rainfall, effectively, around the world. Uh, definitely both nods to the comic. But I also think the newspaper vendor is a nod to Bernard, the guy who sold the newspapers in the center of New York. He was he was present throughout all of the book, and he took his cues for his belief from everything you read in the newspapers. Yet you have this guy, this newspaper seller, effectively saying, I don't believe a thing that comes out of these newspapers, which I think yes. is a little flip on it. And we see the young kid coming up and collecting her set of newspapers. Um, is this a commentary on the fact that everybody now reads the news as if it's like comic books? Because... In the comics, Bernie was the kid that read Black Freighter at the newsstand. Is this kid coming up and reading the newspaper like it's a comic book, effectively, because it's as exciting as comic books used to be now to read the news? Or, or there's so many lies uh, in papers these days. It's not reporting news. Mm-hmm. It's reporting opinion or spin. Yeah. That actually it's like a work of fiction. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm wondering, it's a character we haven't been introduced to yet, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is, that's a new child. Uh, we haven't seen her before. Yeah. Um, and the vendor basically asks, does she really read all of these? Yes. Yeah. So, and it's a white van. It's a white SUV, but it looks somewhat armored. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe. so I'm curious to see if potentially this is someone else. This is someone who we haven't met yet that basically has a daughter who is basically her her slave kind of i don't know how that worked but <laughs> essentially the woman doesn't get out of her car she's Maybe. too important um sh- she basically pulled the child to go collect those things every morning right. and she reads every single word in them mm-hmm. maybe try trying to search for something something like that but as I say, the costuming of the kid that collects the newspapers is almost exactly the same as the 1980s costume of Bernie yeah. who sat there and read the Black Friday, which I just think is a nice nod. Yeah. So maybe we'll never see her again. But I did like that that little touch of the two of them speaking to each other was similar to the comic book. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wondered, like yourself, Chris, who is this girl? Um, but yeah, I, I think it's more going to be that reference to the newsstand and also just the shout out to the fact that the newsstand guy is Robert Wisdom, uh, who was in The Wire. He mm-hmm. was uh, Bunny, the precinct chief, I yeah. think, yeah. where he creates uh, New Holland um, with all the drugs being legal. But uh, that was a, a nice little touch Yeah, it was cool well. to see him in there. I know you even mentioned last episode, John, that your favorite thing that HBO have ever done is The Wire. That's where it all started for you, really, with your love affair with HBO. So interested to see the, the character appear here. A um, couple of other quick things, uh, if you don't mind. I'm sure you have one or two, Chris, as well. Almost back to back with one of the other shows that we covered on The Boys, we had a special appearance by uh, Uncle Bobby from Supernatural. And he appears here as well. He is also another uncle uh, in here. Uh, This time, making a wonderful line where Angela goes, look, there's so much going on in the city here. Could we just take a rain check or something? And he goes, I got to have a real check (laughs) to clear out here, basically. Give me some of that red predations, effectively. So seems to be involved more in the uh, 7th Cavalry than in uh, in Angela's style of life. Seems to be a bit of an abrasive character. So hopefully we'll see Jim Beaver back later in the series. Uh, But really cool to see this cameo of... uh, 
of Uncle Bobby once again on another show. So just a very short one. It may be nothing. It may be something. Um, essentially, when we see Angela inputting her code in her bat cave or in her night sister cave, sister night cave, mm-hmm. um, the, it looks like it's 1980. And then I'm pretty sure it's a five, which is a Easter egg to the release of the original Night Watchmen comic, the year right. it was released. Yep. Um, unfortunately, it's been blocked from my view. Um, <laughs> in everything, it, it, if you just assume where her fingers go, uh, it, the logical step is the five. Um, so it will be interesting. Um, I'm, I'm assuming at some point they'll zoom in on it and that will be the Easter egg, um, mm-hmm. for the show or for that episode. But if it is what I think it is, it's a nice nod. Interesting, interesting. Something else we've learned in this episode, fellow watchers, don't ever buy anything with credit card when Chris is over your shoulder behind you because he will work out your PIN number. Absolutely. What do you mean, 5432? (laughs) Damn it, Chris, don't tell everybody. Uh, One final note we wanted to mention because the name of the episode being Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, it would be weird if we didn't mention the painting that they linger on quite a bit in the house of, of Judd Crawford. Um, the painting shows uh, two Native Americans on, on horseback being attacked by two other Native Americans. I could tell the difference because the Comanche horsemanship that's on show is effectively the people who are being attacked are hiding on the other side of their horses while spears are being thrown at them. So need to know what that means in the context of this show and in the context of this episode, but it's effectively using all of your abilities to avoid being uh, being caught or being killed. So wonder what that means as the episodes go on. If you have any ideas what it means, watchers or anything within the episode, of course, send in your feedback. Email us at feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com with your thought, thoughts about the episodes and, and anything you may have caught that we didn't catch. Yes. Oh, one final, final Easter egg that I noticed after watching the episode one more time after recording the podcast. Uh, I just couldn't not include it in here in our Easter egg section. Um, the Hiroshima Lovers, which is a gr- bit of graffiti, otherwise known as the Atomic Kiss. It's a bit of graffiti that they used to use in the actual comic book that Alan Moore drew. It's of two lovers, a man and a woman, embracing just before a bomb drops effectively. It's called the Atomic Kiss sometimes or the Hiroshima Kiss. Um, it's used in the comic book by Alan Moore multiple times uh, to designate that there is an impending doom coming with a possible drop of an atomic bomb uh, in the show if this is the first time i've seen it it's where angela's dressed up as sister knight leaving in her batmobile i guess or a sister nightmobile uh, just before we get to the newspaper seller that i mentioned earlier on in the easter eggs here on the wall as she's driving out of her lair i suppose uh, it has this image on the wall just check it out it's about nine minutes into the episode but check it out very cool to see it uh, translated into the tv show um i just thought it was kind of cool i'm wondering if i missed one in episode one uh, and look out for it in all the future episodes of the show as well uh, back to the rest of our podcast <laughs> but i think that wraps up our total review of this episode um so just to kind of put a nice bow on it uh john what did you think of this episode overall uh i i really liked it i to me this just added so much to what i think is going to come and what's just been i it's it's got intrigue it's got mystery you've got doubt there's nothing is sure here Mm -hmm. i think um and that's what i'm really uh liking about it at the moment it feels like i've just jumped out of a plane <laughs> and I'm yet to open my parachute. <sighs> nice. Um, and it, you're still swirling around, falling a bit. Um, and you're just trying to make these connections. Um, will they pan out? Will they won't? Or are we completely 
way off the mark. Uh, so the intrigue, the mystery and all that and the doubt and uncertainty, literally about everyone, I think, uh, is really, really good. I'm finding it absolutely exhilarating and really exciting. So I uh, really enjoyed this episode. Uh, I give this uh, four blue members out of five <laughs> uh, for sure in reference to the Blue Man Group headed by Dr. Manhattan and his uh, refinery. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> what about yourself, Derek? I love this episode, but I absolutely will repeat. I ended it saying the exact phrase that Angela said at the end of the episode. WTF is going on. I have no idea. How are we going to podcast about this? Because all I want to do is watch the next episode and find out what actually everything means. I don't know who anybody is. I don't know who I can trust. Even Angela seems a little bit untrustworthy in here because she gets so violent the second she's attacked that she goes way beyond the parameters you'd normally put in a, in a member of the police force, you know? Um, so everybody seems under question for me right now, which is great. That's what I love about these kind of shows. You know, it's something exciting and interesting to talk about. So yeah, really up there with the first episode and really excited to see the third one uh, next week as well. Chris, what about yourself? Yeah, uh, I, I'm very... I'm not even going to lie about it. I, like I'm completely enthralled by this um, show. It, it's captured a lot of the threads of what made the comic book so enthralling for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it posing questions, you just want to consume everything about it. Um, and what I found one of the best parts of this is that it's done at a standard of just the cinematography, the, the, mm-hmm. the composition of the, the music, the, the, the overall, um, acting, like it's a HBO level show. Oh, yeah. uh, and I don't mean that as other shows couldn't have done this, but I, they, they've really rolled out the carpet. Um, the way the composers, um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, um, the night guys from Nine Inch Nails have pulled together the music. It's like just beautiful. Like, it's haunting in parts. It's thumping mm-hmm. in others. I think John, you pointed out that it's, there's some of the songs that they, the guys have done seem to pull a little bit on the, uh, former songs of Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. As well. the, the, there's a theme that runs through on the piano that is very reminiscent of uh, some of the Nine Inch Nail uh, themes. Uh, I think one being uh, closer on the piano, it, 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 it's really, it feels like he's riffing on that in, in part. The outro to closer, yeah, the, the, the piano outro. piece. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think um, Right Where I Belong or Right Where We Belong, I think is one of the tunes that they've kind of used bits of. It's something that Trent Reznor does do quite a lot. Uh, he had his, his album Ghosts, which was about three or four hours of instrumental music that he did. He has these really interesting themes. It was one of the things he did to kind of sell himself as someone that could do uh, soundtracks effectively. So um, so really intriguing. And you're right, Chris, it does kind of unnerve you at times throughout the episode, exactly at the right points that you want yeah. to be unnerved. The music kind of nudges you over the edge, you know, which is cool. Yeah. I, I really want to call out Nicole uh, Castle's um, direction and the mm-hmm. choice of shots. You could have done it a million ways, but when the, the four characters are pulling Judge down from, or at least like gently removing him from the tree. Um, and the decision to focus in on Angela at that angle and then morph it to the, the white knight. Oh, um, beautiful. It was just her husband. Yeah. But yeah. just the choice of all these shots and the, 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 the close-ups and the, it was just so well done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the one that's really stuck with me and I don't know why is, 
the slightly focused and out of focus shifting on the pill bottles when we're in um the sister knight's cave with will the, yeah. the will is in the background and then you we see the the pill bottle there and it was like it was just so well done yeah, yeah. um I'll, I'll 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 very much wrap up by saying we joked about it but this is a david lindoff show every time we're getting an answer 50 more are being posed Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely with you there, Chris, on that uh, great kind of uh, shot as they're pulling uh, the the chief of police down and she says, I let you down as yeah. they're letting him down and then into the, the white Christmas, um, a white night slaughter Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a real great shot, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you say, Chris, you know, it is a Damon Lindelof show and, you know, that focusing and non-focusing of the pill bottles, that's either pay attention to this or pay attention to this while we're doing something over here in the background that you're not paying attention to. Exactly. You know? Which I love. You know, you can't tell with his shows until you see the full season. You can't tell what bits you were supposed to be focused on, which I love. So uh, always good. Yeah. But gentlemen, I think that about wraps up everything fellow watchers thank you so much for joining us be on the lookout for our feedback podcast bulletin of our atomic watchers see i kept the name john yeah (laughs) great one before our review of episode three next week and don't forget we want to hear your feedback be it vocally or just in writing so if you want to go to tvpodcastinjury.com and leave us a voicemail we'll make sure your dulcet tones join us in the bulletin or just actually send your feedback to feedback at tvpodcastinjury.com don't forget if even if you don't want to do either of those things you can still join us on our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash tvpodcastindustries and jump into the spoiler cast posts where we'll be talking everything we can about the episode. But we really do want to make this very much a community lost like, um, kind of feedback areas. Cause we know you're, all, we all think one thing, three things, five things. We want to hear what you think Damon's doing. We want to hear what we think this uh, series is going. This episode is going. Pose some questions, answer some questions. Throw some random theories out because, you know, I personally love those. Yeah. And tell us when we're wrong as well, because we're coming at it from one perspective, remember? So we're all talking about these episodes and thinking what we think is right and thinking this is what our ideas are going on to these episodes. If you've seen something that completely contradicts what we've seen, please email us. Please let us know what you thought. Uh, we'd love to hear from everyone that's listened to the podcast. Our cutoff time for weekly feedback is Wednesday at 2 minutes to midday GMT, which is 1 p.m. Wednesday, Central Europe, 7 a.m. Wednesday for U.S. East Coast and 4 a.m. Wednesday for U.S. West Coast and also 10 p.m. in, in Melbourne, Australia, right? Yeah. <laughs> let us know your thoughts. Send them in to us and we will talk about them on our next podcast, our feedback podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, we don't forget... If you haven't yet subscribed to our podcast or tvpodcastindustry.com for all the links and everywhere you can find us. We'll be back on Monday the 4th of November for Watchmen Episode 3, She Was Killed by Space Junk. John, do you want to give us a bit of the official synopsis for this episode? Yeah, sure. Following a late night visit from the Senator, FBI agent Laurie Blake heads to Tulsa to take over the recent murder investigation. The Lord of the Manor receives a harshly worded letter and responds accordingly. Ooh, the Lord of the Manor, you see? They're not yes, even naming him exactly. in the synopsis of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the Lord of the Manor? Uh, the palace, maybe. The glass palace. Mm-hmm, maybe. The, he's um, exactly who you think he is. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and Laurie here seems to be Silk Spectre, uh, or Laurie Juspekcek, uh, taking her father, Eddie Blake's, or the comedian's surname. So that will be an interesting addition into this series, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. But just to close out, fellow watchers, remember, uh, you can subscribe and support our podcast through TV Podcast Industries by sharing, uh, with friends, uh, rating us, uh, leaving a review on any podcast catcher of your choice that would be great and also now we have a patreon account where you can also uh, support the podcast um if you wish uh, for all your support we thank you absolutely and it is over on patreon at patreon.com forward slash tv podcast industries that's it yes thank you so much watchers for now keep watching the watchman watch the skies because you never know when a big massive electromagnet may steal your car <laughs> Absolutely. Oh no, mine's just gone. <laughs> I do kind of feel like I'm past, present, and future all at the same time right there. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, fellow watchers. As always, keep watching, keep listening. Bye.